every day I'd go fishing and if it moved you killed it and if it didn't move you kicked it till it did and then you stabbed it with your spear. So I grew up with very little respect for the, for the ocean resource but as I get older I shake my head and go you know we got away with that but it was a bloody terrible attitude. So everyone went, well that's the end of it. You know, we can't continue with gone fishing. And I said, oh, I want to have a crack at it. And so I took over the debt and the opportunity and became executive producer, producer, director, underwater cameraman and presenter. Oh, bugger me, suddenly we could all fit in a helicopter and we came in under budget. And I said to God, God, it's like this cobber. He's got his whole life ahead of him, take me. And I think that what God did is clip the ticket. He said, listen mate, here's the thing. We'll make James a good healthy chap, but you know how you've done some bad things? Well, maybe it's time you learned a few lessons. And I wound up with MS. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Broad Reach Radio, the Yachting New Zealand podcast. My name is Michael Brown and today we bring you something a little different. Graham Sinclair is a boatie who has been the face of the television show Gone Fishing for 27 years, presented various documentaries, been involved in environmental and charity work and written a number of books. He even had a stint as a weatherman, but he's done a lot of it living with multiple sclerosis. Graham talks about his relationship with the ocean and how that has evolved over time. He also traces the background to gone fishing, why it has proved so popular both here and overseas, and how he, a salesman, ended up presenting the show. Graham also shares his experiences with MS, the day he received the devastating news, the impact it's had on his life, and why he now talks about it as a gift. I really appreciated Graham's honesty in this interview. His views have sometimes got him into a bit of hot water, but he's also an inspiring figure who continues to live life to the full, despite his many challenges. I also enjoyed his hospitality in his man cave, as he calls it, at his home in the north of Auckland. He's an engaging character, so I hope you enjoy this podcast. Graham Sinclair, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. And thank you for having us uh, at your man cave, at your place out at Stillwater. It's not a bad wee spot. An accumulation of material, I think, that represents a misspent youth. It's probably the best way to describe it. Well, we can talk about your misspent youth and and maybe some of your um, adult escapades as well. So I think um, it could be an interesting little episode, this one, on Broadreach Radio. But... uh, just just initially, we've just come out of lockdown 2.0. How did you uh, cope with the, the latest lockdown? Well, for the last 12 months, I've been in rehabilitation mode. I wound up copping influenza A, which tried to kill me. And as part of that, I had a pressure wound, because I live in a wheelchair, uh, that went bad. Um, and actually, it was quite interesting, because I had a surgeon who was a, a registrar who came up to me and said... Uh, uh, so how tough are you when he looked at this pressure wound because it needed debriding so he had to cut the, the, the dead tissue off 
And when he said, how tough are you? I said, look, I'm a Cantabrian. I don't come any tougher than Cantabrians. He said, oh, well, this won't hurt a bit. So he proceeded to grab a scalpel and cut a thing half the size of a golf ball out of my backside with no pain relief and no anaesthesia. So that was a bit of an eye-opener, uh, if, if not eye-watering experience. Uh, and then from there it all went bad. I had five operations and uh, we've spent a year bouncing back. So the first lockdown, I was just getting back into a mode where I could start working again and moving around and interviewing. Uh, and then with the second lockdown period, I've spent a lot of time researching family history, which has been bloody interesting. Some scallywags back there, some some bloody characters in the Sinclair lineup. Do you think you're carrying on the Sinclair name then? Oh, I think so. I mean, as you look around this man cave, and there are, you know, there are mounted deer heads and bits of old wrecked ships and things. Not everything has been acquired according to the letter of the law. Uh, poached that guy in Fiordland, he's a big fella. Um, and I think those sorts of escapades uh, add a little spice to life. Um, although it's not the way in which people function anymore. But it was bloody good to be part of. So have, when was the last time you were on the water? The last time I was on the water was almost a year ago. That's how bad this is. Combination of recovery and um, and uh, the lockdown scenario with COVID nineteen. And how have you coped? I haven't coped. Ask my wife. Bloody nightmarish. Perfectly good boat, and I'm not on it. Ridiculous. How would you describe, I guess, your relationship with the ocean? Well, it's one that evolved. Intriguingly, my father started life as a commercial fisherman out of Littleton. Uh, his father was a boat builder. His father was a boat builder in Littleton as well. Um, but my relationship with the ocean, when I was just a little kid, I grew up next to the estuary in Redcliffs, down near Sumner in Christchurch. And every day I'd go fishing and you know, that was kind of the, the way of things. And if it moved, you killed it, and if it didn't move, you kicked it till it did, and then you stabbed it with your spear or you know, chucked a bait at it or did something. So I grew up with very little respect for the, for the ocean resource. And two, in those days, of course, commercial fishermen got what they could catch. There was no quota management system. There was no limitation on what you could extract. You just, it was just based on how much time you spent on the water and how good you were. Uh, so that was my attitude too. But in terms of evolving, you know, as I get older, I, I, I shake my head and go, you know, we got away with that, but it was a bloody terrible attitude. And it's the reason why we have uh, resources under threat today. And that, that cuts across everything almost. You know, it's not just the resources in the ocean. It's not just things like, you know, bird populations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's what we've done to the land as well and what sedimentation has done in the Hauraki Gulf. You know, all these interrelationships we're now wising up about. So we're learning to fish sustainably. We're learning to manage our environmental impact in the ocean. And, you know, that's something I, I salute wholeheartedly. And so to have come from rape, pillage and plunder to a recognition of 
needing sound marine management uh, is, is fantastic. But I don't make any excuses for the journey I've travelled. It was part of the journey a lot of us took at that time. And it was based on ignorance, sure, but it was the way we were. And I guess you can teach an old dog new tricks. Well, I'd quite like to talk to you about the, I guess, the environmental sort of side of things a bit later on, because that's something that you've been heavily involved with. But I guess uh, just to initially in this in this podcast, yeah, I'd like to talk to you about the fact that you're probably best known as the face of Gone Fishing, uh, which has been on our screens, I think, for more than 25 years. Yes. Are you a fisherman who happens to be on TV, or are you a TV presenter who happens to go fishing? I was a fisherman who wound up on telly. Um, In fact, there were a group of us that got the Gone Fishing series underway. Uh, The chap that really kicked it off was a guy by the name of Mike Barner. Uh, He approached us at a television production company, uh, saying, look, look, you know, there's no representation for recreational fishing uh, and, um, and it should happen. And at about that time, a National Research Bureau survey came out. It was published in October 1991. It said that 745,000 Kiwis over the age of 16 go fishing at least once a year. Sorry, I lie. It was $740 million they spent. It was 916 or 914,000 Kiwis went fishing at least once a year. So, you know, not far off a mill. And that's a big chunk of people. And that made it by far the largest recreational pursuit in the country. So why did we have no tally? So armed with that NRB research survey uh, and a great deal of enthusiasm, we started knocking on doors, calling on networks and talking to potential sponsors. And what was the response like? Um, It was not a resounding success, actually. There was a lot of reticence, uh, and it it was just purely by good luck that a chap by the name of John Angus knocked on Nissan's door at a time when they were launching Pathfinder, uh, and they went, my God, this is a perfect fit. So the first series became Nissan Pathfinder Gone Fishing. So in the first series, we had executive producer, producer, director, cameraman, presenter, me, a production assistant, camera assistant, had this cast of thousands because that was the way tally was made. In the second series, by well, the second series, it was quite clear that we did not have anywhere near the budget. Sure, Nissan had, stumped, had, had, had put some money in, and a few other people had started to as well, but it wasn't enough to make tally that way. So everyone went, well, that's the end of it. You know, we can't continue with gone fishing. And I said, oh, I want to have a crack at it. And basically the message was, listen, mate, you may be okay on camera, uh, but you've got no experience making TV. I said, for God's sake, I can bloody well learn. I'll ask. I'll just ask. I'll learn on the job. And so I took over the debt and the opportunity and became executive producer, producer, director, underwater cameraman and presenter. Bill bugger me, suddenly we could all fit in a helicopter and we came in under budget. So it wasn't the way TV had been made at that time, um, but it was a way of changing it so you could make good tally using a, a, a very much minimalised team, a small team. How did you get the gig to be the presenter? Well, it was by default, because when we it was clear that we could do this, we went and cut a... 
a pilot story and we couldn't pay anyone to appear on camera and um, Mike said, hey, why don't you have a crack at it? So I'm oh, okay, all right. And the exec producer at the time is a, a well-known sailor by the name of Larry Keating um, who did a lot of research in, in support of America's Cup. And um, Larry said, mate, when you look at the camera, just imagine you're talking to a friend. From that day on, it's a doddle. When I look at that camera, just talking to a mate. So, great advice. And um, it worked. And, and the first series was actually on air on TV1 at 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning, which is a shocking time. But it actually pulled some good numbers. Uh, and TV3 came across and offered us 5 o'clock on Saturday. So we've either been 5 or 5.30 on a Saturday or Sunday ever since. Perfect. 27 years. What were those early days like? Uh, and and oh. sort of how, how have they differed now? They were bloody good fun. Man, could you get up to some bloody mischief. Oh, oh sorry about the bloodies, but, you know, you, you've got to add a bit of colour to this. Um, you know, we were choosing where we wanted to go, what we wanted to film, and then it was like a voyage of discovery. Wherever we went, we were meeting fantastic people. You know, Kiwis are great people. They really are. They're fantastic. And I am genuine and inc- genuinely incredibly proud uh, to be called a New Zealander. I love this place and its people and the environment. So we'd go where we wanted to go, create these stories out of virtually nothing on the fly, um, and I very quickly realised that all that meant was that it was a privilege. What I've done for the last almost 30 years is an absolute bloody privilege. Has it become more difficult with regulations and... and yeah, um, in fact, oh, in, in fact, as a, as a guy who, you know, five years in I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis or MS and quite quickly I wound up in a wheelchair, fought it tooth and nail, uh, but ultimately I, I was using all my energy just trying to stand up. So it was just sheer bloody-mindedness and stupidity. So I couldn't continue to work standing up, so I had to modify my approach and learn to work sitting down. So that's how how uh, that um, kind of came into being. But, but I think the great realisation too with that was in fact that um, hello my darling it's just my wife giving me a Kit Kat how's that? Looked after yeah looked after totally and, and that's part of it too winding up in a wheelchair um, I thought well golly you know who am I going to find that's going to be interested in me well the answer is uh, this amazing person that I've been married to for 20 years you know we've had a couple of wonderful children um, I had a son to a previous relationship um, uh, and was basically at that time diagnosed with this, with this disease. But, but the thing is, it doesn't matter whether you're making television, fighting a disease or dealing with almost any challenge in particular. With The sporting analogy is an easy one. It's all about teamwork. You know, and he said, you can't do it on your own. So if you build the right team around you, you can surmount beat, thrash any challenge 
but you've got to get the right team. And part of that, I think, part of that uh, development of relationships is about attitude. You know, you, I remember for years there was a saying bandied around saying, uh, there is no I in team. You remember that one? Mm-hmm. There is no I in team. Absolute freaking bullshit. I've never heard such a bullshit saying in all my life. There is an I in team and I'm it. Unless you stump up with your measure of capability and, and you lift your performance to the level of the team, you're letting the team down. So yeah, there is an I in team and I've got to be it. So if you can retain a positive attitude, surround yourself with like-minded people, get your supporters... Uh, genuine supporters who genuinely care about you, around you, you can achieve any damn thing. Have you gone back and watched some of those early episodes? Yeah. And I guess, what What's that like to see? It's actually bloody fantastic. We ran a series of, uh, because of COVID, I was supposed to have done the fourth series of, um, uh, a series called Ocean Bounty, which is a bit of a, focus on commercial fishing but it's more than that it's really about everybody commercial recreational iwi environmental groups all working together for what's best for the ocean but we couldn't get out and film after the first lockdown and so our first spot for ocean bounty series four was vacated so i wound up doing a series of gone fishing glimpses back in yesteryear wow was that fun you know, and you just keep, you know, we'd sit around and we'd go, oh, remember that. Remember when you buggers were pushing me through the bloody grass in the Northern Territory and trying to get me to bloody catch the snakes with my shins? Oh, hilarious. Remember when we were fishing in the bloody billabong and you, you lifted me up the bank and we looked down and the croc was about 10 feet away? Oh, hilarious. So you had all these great memories of, you know, things close run, things, and there were a couple of dodgy ones in the Northern Territory. Man, they've got some crocs up there. So is that episode the one that sticks out the most? or is there No, one? no. In fact, the more you start talking about where you've been and who you've met and the privilege of being a Kiwi, the, the more wonderful memories come to the surface. You know, honestly, gee, what a life. It wasn't that long before the rights of the show were sold to international broadcasters. I, mean, yeah. I think it's screened in places like the US, Australia, Europe, and the UK. Yeah. Why do you think it had that international appeal? I, I think because when we showcase New Zealand with its combination of great people, natural beauty, and relatively abundant resources then the combination's hard to beat, really, and I think is immensely attractive to international visitors. I think we're getting better, too, with with what we do in some areas, um, but I still think that um, in some ways clean green is not what we are. I think we need to get a bit cleaner. Um, but we're moving in that direction, so fingers crossed. But, yeah... Um, that the reception internationally was fantastic. Well, I remember once we filmed in bloody Mexico, we were on the bottom of the Baja Peninsula in a place called Cabo San Lucas, and um, we had been out game fishing for the day. We backed into the marina berth, 
and on the opposite side was this massive uh, motor yacht thing. I don't know how big she was, you know, a couple of hundred feet. Uh, a vessel called the Lady Colombo. And I'm looking way up at the, the bridge and people are looking down and pointing. And the next thing, three people came off the bridge and came down and jumped on board with a bunch of Steinlagers. So the, the captain was a Canadian and the first mate and chief engineer were Kiwis. And so they, were, they loved Steinlager and wherever they went, they get a new supply of Steinlager. So there we were in Cabo San Lucas drinking uh, bloody Steinlagers in the marina. Uh, and they're saying, oh, we watched the show on satellite TV, you know, da-da-da, wherever we go. Uh, and then we went back to the hotel and we were around the swimming pool and there were three, this is no bullshit, there were three couples there, um, and two American couples who watched the show and an Irish couple who watched the show in Ireland on B Sky B. So, and then there was us. And we all knew each other and it was Mexico. How, how did you cope with being a known face and a known voice and a known name? I think it comes back to that um, privileged, privileged thing. When I said that I haven't always been a good boy, I haven't either. Um, but I think once you, once you have a public profile, then I felt that I had a responsibility to make sure that what I did was actually exemplary, that it was, you know, was the best that I could be. I'm not saying I haven't made mistakes. Um, you know, we're human after all. But, you know, I try to do my best, and as a consequence, I've done a lot of work uh, with young people. We run a program in association with uh, Police Blue Light, um, which is kind of like a youth education arm of the police. Uh, and um, as patron, uh, we run um, Kids Gone Fishing events, and um, I just wound up speaking at a... Um, a life skills course at Whanua Pai Air Base with 30 kids who had been through a week of life skills. You know, these are teenage kids. Uh, some had the potential maybe to behave not so well. Um, and, you know, Blue Light's all about getting these kids and showing them a better way. And, I, you know, I just applaud people that give so much time and effort to our youth because our youth is our future. And if we can shape them with great attitudes and opportunities, wow, our future is bright. So were you behind the Kids Gone Fishing uh, initiative? So yes. That was, that, that was more than 20 years ago, wasn't it? Oh, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So was that a, you approaching the police in the blue light? Or no. was approach, them approaching you? No, it was a sergeant down in uh, Mapodaki by the name of Tom Brooks. We were filming down in Takaha and... Uh, Tom said, oh, we've got a kids' fishing event this weekend. How about hanging around? So, oh, yeah, sounds good. So we hung around. Um, and um, the kids' event was fantastic. The only trouble was, in those days, my six-foot-four Rarotongan sound man, Tarks Morrison, who every now and again I'd try and tackle Tarks. It was like trying to tackle the pyramid. You know, it was just a brick wall. I could never get him off his feet. Um, but, you know, we kept that game up for two or three years. And we're down at the kids' event in Tikaha, and he, they pad him up because they've got a police dog display. So Tarks has got these great big pads. They can't, he's so big they can hardly get the bloody things on him. Anyway, Prance is out there and they let a dog loose and uh, the dog grabs Tarks by the arm and he lifts it up in the air 
And Tom's standing next to me going, no, no, put the dog down, put the dog down. And with that, a second dog comes out and he does the same thing. A very strong man. He's standing there with two dogs, one on each arm. And I'm going to Tom, why, what's wrong, what's wrong? Because if he doesn't put them down, they're going to drop his arm and they're going to grab him by the nuts. And he's really going to know about it. Oh, that's not so good. Tugs, put the bloody dogs down. <laughs> so, very interesting. So just discussions with, with Tom, you, you came up with Yeah, we, and we talked about making this a, um, you know, more of a national event. Wouldn't it be great if we could encourage kids, parents, caregivers to spend the greatest gift that, that they can possibly spend together? It's time. You know, kids don't crave uh, another device to look at and bury themselves in. Well, I hope they don't. They certainly didn't used to. Um, if we can spend more quality time with our kids, things like sailing, of course, absolutely ideal. You learn a little bit of individual self-reliance. You, you learn personal skills. And along the way, you get a pat in the back from mum and dad. Brilliant. You've talked about uh, your MS briefly. Uh, it was season five, I think it was. Yeah, um, yeah. What was it like to, to hear that news? It was um, very ugly, actually. Um, you know, I, my son had just been born uh, and he needed an operation. Uh, he had a tracheal esophageal fistula. His... Uh, his um, esophagus linked across to his trachea. So if he'd drunk anything at birth, he would have drowned. Uh, so as soon as he was born, they operated and they linked his, um, his, his esophagus back to the stomach so he could you know, feed normally. Uh, but while he was in hospital, he wound up uh, basically dying uh, and being saved uh, and I sat by his incubator and I said to God God, it's like this cobber he's got his whole life ahead of him take me someone's got to go, take me and I think that what God did is clip the ticket he said listen mate, here's the thing we'll make James a good healthy chap but you know how you've done some bad things well, maybe it's time you learned a few lessons and, and I wound up with MS. Obviously, probably, no relationship whatsoever. But it's an intriguing way to look at things. And, and in its own warped, weird way, MS, for me, has been a gift. Uh, it's taught me that I wasn't as shit hot as I thought I was, most definitely. Um, but, but it's also taught me to... Um, to, to deal with more empathy in a far wider range of circumstances. And the other thing is, when it comes to talking to kids, I'm at a perfect height. I'm not a threat. Good thing about a wheelchair. Good way to look at it. Did you have a sense that things went right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. I was actually filming down in Fiordland, uh, and we'd had a a day where we'd caught five bluefin tuna uh, out of the mouth of Thompson's and Nancy Sounds uh, in a storm. 
uh, day before it had been blowing 60 knots onshore, and the next day it was 60 knots offshore, and we were wearing full wet weather gear and life jackets uh, because you know we thought it was quite possible that one of us could get blown over. Uh, you know, it was seriously howling, but the footage is incredible. And when I talk about teamwork, the, the most amazing example of teamwork I have ever seen was with Reese Duncan, who had the camera held on his shoulder by old Tarks, almost Tarks, no nuts, um, uh, and Tarks was holding the camera against the wind while Reese was filming this action with a bluefin, and the footage is just exceptional. And I looked around at one stage, and Reese looks at me, and sometimes we had such a, a unique relationship. I'd look at him, and he'd just nod, and he, we knew what we wanted. Um, and he was kind of shaking his head that day, though. But the result, exceptional. But your body, Teamwork. But your body just wasn't... Body wasn't right. I got out of the game chair at one stage, and my leg gave way. Next day, I was uh, diving for crayfish. Always prided myself on my ability to catch crays. I'd grab a cray, it'd flick its tail, and I couldn't hold it. Oh, that was weird. Weird, weird, weird. Uh, and then, long story short, tests done. Um, went to see a specialist. Quite a negative jab, actually. Uh, nice enough guy, but, you know... The, the, the thing to me that is really important is that if you're going to give someone bad news, the way you deliver the message, I think, is of paramount importance. And what the message I was given was, oh, love your fishing show, blah, blah, blah. Oh, by the way, you've got multiple sclerosis. Well, uh, a lady who was very close to me died of the associated effects of MS when I was a kid. So I knew what MS could lead to, and you don't know how your journey's going to shape up initially either. You don't know whether it's going to be a one-way ticket to the grave. You don't know how badly you're going to get knocked around. Um, I do know you can fight against it, um, and to a certain extent successfully without doubt. But you know, I didn't want MS, I can tell you that. So to be told in that way, and I went away in shock. And when I went back to see him, I'd thought about it, and I was quite angry, actually, to be honest. And I said, listen, mate, it's like this. Don't want you on the team. In fact, you can you know, have sex and travel, basically. Um, oh, yeah, that's not very nice. I said, listen, mate, that, the way you tell people they're going to fail is probably the reason why a number do. Why don't you consider the way you deliver your message and perhaps consider that it's worth indicating to people that they've got a challenge on their hands and maybe, maybe as part of the team, you can help the outcome. So let's work together to get the best possible outcome with this. And people beat it. So let's be one of the, the teams that beat it. Wow, you know, if you did that, people would go away with hope. If you tell them they're going to fail, you're not helping them at all. Quite often people are... are initially quite negative when they hear bad news like that yeah, you know they fair can, enough and you can see the end of you know the involvement you know so are you saying that you were quite positive about you were going to be able to continue the show you're going to be able to continue your life as normally as possible or did you think 
oh god you know that could be the end of the show that could be the end of me and boating oh, I honestly didn't know so what I did is decided that I would embrace each and every day and deal with whatever the day served up I'd make plans that were relatively short term uh, rather than you know too extens- extensive um, and in the middle of this TV3 actually um, offered me a job as weatherman uh, just just when I was getting quite seriously crook. So they wanted this outdoor macho guy to go up against Jim Hickey, uh, and I was kind of becoming a little bit less of a bloody outdoor macho guy and more of a disabled chap in a wheelchair. But they would prop me up in a stall, and I'd prattle away and read the auto cue and do the weather, and you know I wanted to add lib and... I wanted to use, um, you know, everywhere you go, always take the weather, the weather with you, you know, and I wanted to use that song as my thing. And I just couldn't put my touch on it. And then when I got really sick towards the end of that year, I put a proposal to them that, why don't, why don't we actually embrace the wheelchair? Why don't I become the only wheelchair driving weatherman in the world? Let's make a point of difference out of it. Let's have some fun. And at the end of the night, I'll kind of whiz down a ramp and pull him behind John, Carol and co. And, you know, let's, let's have some fun here. Nah, didn't want to borrow that. So, so I got moved out of the weather. Don't come Monday. And uh, it was getting to a point anyway where a choice needed to be made. You know, was I a weatherman or was I more about outdoor New Zealand and continuing what I love to do? Well, it was a no contest in effect. So being told not to, to bother with the weather didn't really affect me greatly. In fact, it probably helped because it was one less stress, uh, and stress is not a, a friend of multiple sclerosis. I wonder if your proposal was maybe just a bit ahead of your time, wasn't it? You know, it's probably yeah, something that yeah. would be more acceptable. I, I think so. And when we talk about you know, changes, you know, I talked about changes in attitude with relation to you know, extracting food from the ocean, you know, now I, I think, uh, you know, the commercial industry gets a hell of a lot of flack, but the, the distance they've travelled in 30 years is phenomenal. You know, they, they look to farm. It's a simple business analogy is all you need. If you go out as a farmer and you kill all your stock, what have you got for next year? You've got bloody nothing. So why would a commercial fisherman want to rape the ocean? You want to harvest, you want to farm the ocean. And that's what we're seeing more of, and I applaud it. And there are situations where we get groups working together. A classic example is the Fiordland Guardians, where commercial crayfishermen have exited the fields. The only people that pull crayfish out of the fields themselves now are recreational divers. Uh, Environmental groups are working with uh, the Guardians. Uh, Commercial, iwi, recreational... It's all just, it's all a group, like-minded. And governing all of their activities is this, is this mission statement, if you like. And that is to leave the fields in as good a state, if not better, for future generations. So that's the overriding objective. And I, I applaud that, and I think we should be doing more of it. You've got examples in Kaikoura, for example, with Te Korowai. Uh, similar deal, group of people working together for the betterment of the environment and the marine resource. Applaud it, love it.
You know, instead of fighting each other, get round the table and have the conversation. I, I, we'll come back to the environmental stuff again a, a bit later on, but I've just got a couple more, I guess, about how you've been able to adapt uh, to the television show and your disability. Um, but what were sort of, I guess, some of the main challenges, um, you know, to be able to keep doing what you were doing to present the show? Uh, getting places, getting in and out of vehicles, boats, helicopters, uh, being manhandled, uh, getting to the bathroom, getting in and out of the shower, getting in and out of bed, you know, all those things. I remember once speaking at a meeting um, to raise uh, funds for MS and there was a guy bailed me up after it uh, because I'd said that I accepted help from other people. He said, you know, how can you do that? How can you give away your independence? I said, pretty bloody simply when you do the job that I do. If the choice is, do I give up work uh, and try and continue with this bloody-minded idea that I can do everything myself, um, or do I um, actually embrace help and continue with the job I love and travel the place I love? No contest, gobber. So, you know, very interesting stuff. Very interesting how different people react to these things too. Do you see yourself as a bit of a, I guess, a spokesman for people with disabilities? I don't think about it a great deal, to be honest. Maybe I should more. I've been so busy for so long focusing on, you know, the show must go on, environmental practices, um, kids' events. Uh, yes. There's, there's just not enough time in a day to do all of the things that I'd like to think that I'd, I should be doing. And I do have to watch um, my uh, capabilities. I do have to watch running the batteries flat, especially after the last year. The last year was a real kick in the ass. What would, I guess, be a main message to people, perhaps in a similar situation? And I'm thinking of... Other people who love their boating but think, can I keep doing this? The answer is you can, uh, but it comes back to the right support network. And in case of the case of boats, you know, I had, I've currently got a Surtees boat parked out the front of the house, and, and Surtees have made several modifications to cope with my, my needs over the years. So if you want a, a decent aluminium boat in a manufacturer who understands disability, uh, then someone like Surtees is... And, and, and someone like Surtees, but aluminium is a material, a, a great combo, because you can just kind of cut and weld and shape and hinge and cr- make wonderful modifications at work. Teamwork again. What then is the pro- prognosis, I guess, like for you? Bugger the fight, no, I don't consult it. Um, I, I think I've got at least a couple more years uh, doing what I love, and at some point, of course, you've got to pass the baton. You know, there are a lot of young fellas coming through now, and women, uh, doing a great job. And, in fact, it, it's fantastic to see... It's, I was going to say it's fantastic to see young, young women coming through with great capability... But by and large, they make bloody good anglers. 
Now, why is that? I don't know. But women seem to, if you're trying to instruct someone, often a guy will go, oh, I know that, I know that. You know, I do it this way. Whereas if you're trying to teach a, a woman how to do something, how to tie a knot, how to use the rod, the real combo, they tend to listen. I mean, weird, isn't it? Mm. I've got to watch what I say, really. Well, it certainly doesn't appear to have slowed you down that much. You talked about the weatherman situation with uh, the late 1990s. You've also made, I think, four documentaries. And about three three years ago, you talked about this um, series, um, Ocean Bounty. Yes. Now, you described it once as gone fishing on steroids. Yeah, what, what, it's not, though. What was the background to that show? It was... I had one of the guys from the commercial industry approach me saying, look, mate, we are not the rat bags that people think we are. We don't get any representation. Uh, I, I'd like you to have a look at telling some, some of our stories. I said, here's the deal, mate. If you want me to tell stories about the commercial industry, they've got to be my stories done my way without interference. He said, I wouldn't have it any other way. And the commercial industry has never once tried to influence what I say. And I applaud that. Has, have you seen it? And, and not only that, the industry's full of amazing bloody people doing wonderful things you know, in the most incredible places on the planet. Not bad. Have, have you noticed a different attitude uh, people have towards commercial fishing since screening of your show? I, I, I think the more people come to understand what's going on, you know, there's a lot of families just trying to, after several generations of fishing, eke out a living, and they're trying to do it responsibly, and all they get is shit, um, and, and that's got to be hard. I think that when it comes to environmental messages, you know, we're all very aware of Maui dolphins, but I think that, that we can handle that Maui challenge better. I think if we knew where they were and what their range was, we wouldn't have to be so drastic uh, about how we're affecting the livelihoods of people in the, in the both recreational and commercial fishing. And iwi too, for that matter. You ask them. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, there's so many areas where we just, I think, need to, to get better. And I think that getting better is about engagement. It's about getting groups around the table, engaging, sharing common objectives and saying, look, you know, if you give a bit, I can give a bit. Let's compromise. Let's make it work. How have you been involved in the process much around trying to find workable frameworks? Yeah, I was fortunate enough with the last government to sit... Uh, with a with a man who, you know, was almost like a mentor to me, although he was only three or four years older, uh, Sir Rob Fennick, who cheered. Rob passed away this year, but he cheered a group called uh, Technical Advisory Group on the Future of Fishing. So there were there were about five of us, I think, in the in the team, and we listened to a lot of submissions from all of the groups that I've been talking about from the NGOs, from the environmental groups, from iwi, from commercial, from recreational, uh, about what their vision was for the future of the fishery. 
Uh, and we quite quickly came to understand that most of the groups weren't that far apart, that effectively if they did spend the time, if they did get round the table, they would find that commonality uh, and would make great progress. Uh, in some cases it's happening, but it's slow. You know, there are a few groups that seem more interested in being antagonistic rather than um, than open to the idea of negotiation. So are you seen as a facilitator, an advisor? Or what sort of capacity have you In that of, situation. Well, in, in any of the sort of... Oh, I think I'm bloody uh, seen as a heretic uh, and by some recreational groups. You know, How does that sit with you? Oh, goes with the territory, I guess. And as I say, all I'm trying to do is get people to sit around the table and do what's best for the ocean. What, what's best for the fishery? How do we ensure a sustainable future fishery? How do we ensure that our environmental footprint is, is, is better tomorrow than it was today? How do we achieve all these things? Well, we don't achieve it by throwing stones at each other. You know, it's, it used to be a bit like, I think it has got a bit better, I think it used to be a bit like fighting in the trenches in World War I. You know, someone would stick their head above a bloody parapet and there'd be a sniper waiting to shoot them between the eyes. Well, we've got to get past that. Got to get out of the trenches, get into no man's land, mix it, meet, and, uh, and negotiate a peace. Because I read somewhere that you're, and I quote, a character who's not afraid to swim against the mainstream of, of popular opinion. Do you agree with that yeah, statement? That's right. But you've got to be careful. I'm not the sort of person that doesn't think a lot. You know, I'm not someone who gets an idea and goes, right, that's the truth, that's my new truth, and I'm off on a crusade and damn the torpedoes. And you see that quite often. You see a lot of people who think they understand the environment or they think they understand what's happening in the fisheries and they form an opinion based on what a few people might say and it becomes a populist opinion. But you, you need to, to dig. You, know, you need to ask responsible questions. You need to ask the right questions to get the right information to make informed decisions about what is right. So, yeah, I don't mind swimming against the tide at all. Have your views ever got you in hot water? Oh, a couple of death threats here and there. And, you know, it's significant verbal abuse on occasion. I just laugh. It's, it's water off a duck's back. But I, look, you know, life's a funny thing, isn't it? It's a journey. It has a beginning, a middle and an end. Sooner or later we all hit the end. And if you've made a ripple, so be it. Um, you know, I look at someone like Sir Rob Fennick, who I mentioned earlier. Rob passed away at cancer. Um, and, it, and it got him this year. Um, absolutely amazing human being. Incredible man. Uh, one of the best facilitators I've ever seen with groups of people, and I'm talking about the technical advisory group, but he didn't take shit from anyone. You know, if people were mouthing off and they were ill-informed, he let them know. I greatly respect that. Where do you think this... Forthrightness, you know, come uh, came from. Is it? Have you got uh, my great great grandfather, <laughs> William Sinclair, 
was born in northern Scotland in 1822. He signed on to the Merchant Navy in 1845, and we've got that record. Somewhere between 1845 and the mid-1850s, when he turned up in South Australia on the goldfields, he's rumoured to have travelled to New Zealand uh, at least once. Uh, And I'm trying... I've got a young cousin, a second cousin, um, Jen Costa, who's just this passionate family history buff. She is incredible. And she's unearthing all this this stuff. And during lockdown, the latter part of lockdown, it's been my pleasure to um, have endless conversations with Jen about the family history. And I'm at the moment trying to put together a, a bit of a documentary. Because William Sinclair, when he turned up in the goldfields, um, he sailed on a vessel called the Nugget uh, from Liverpool. Uh, with his wife Barbara and their daughter Margaret. Margaret died on the voyage, um, and Barbara died on the goldfields um, of a of a lung disease. Uh, a lot of the the women worked beside the men underground uh, in Victoria, uh, and she succumbed to this terrible illness. And it said in her death certificate it took her ten months, basically, to die uh, from the time of diagnosis. Um, so William left uh, Australia with his son, James, uh, who became a, a fantastic boat builder. And William was listed on the nugget as a, a ship's carpenter. Uh, but, but there's a great... And he turned up in Littleton. And there's a great ad in the Littleton paper, probably about 1860-something, and it's from Mrs. E. Sinclair's second wife, saying, To the publicans of Littleton, please do not serve drink to William Sinclair from this day forward, or proceedings will be entered into. So, although I never got to meet William for obvious reasons, he died in 1900, um, he sounds like a real character. He sounds like one hell of a character. But his son, James, was the builder of, of fantastic yachts and racing yachts, one of which was a vessel called Mascot. Uh, Mascot won the Dominion Cup, which was the penultimate yachting prize in those days. He, uh, he, he won it three times. And Sinclair as being what they bloody are, they stole the cup. Uh, so I've got a cousin who's got the damn thing. Um, and it's a piece of New Zealand yachting history. and should be in a museum somewhere. But, you know, I've got, during the, the 1950s even, like there's, I've got a photo here. Of uh, these are the Sinclair family yacht race skippers. There was a Sinclair family yacht race for over a decade in Littleton. And there's a picture there. It's my grandfather, one, two, three uncles, and my father, all of which were skippers during those those races. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, one of them, uh, Bert uh, A. L. Sinclair, Albert Leonard. Uh, he sailed in the Sanders Cup, um, apparently with my dad. Um, Granddad was apparently a bit upset because the boys had been to war. Um, Bert was greatly affected by the war in the Pacific and had a lot of trouble with alcohol, had seen some terrible things, came back with a Japanese sniper's rifle. He'd shot the, the guy out of a coconut tree uh, and you know had some face-to-face exchanges in the jungles. Greatly affected him, but brilliant sailor. Uh, so anyway, with the Sanders Cup, the boys went out, won the first race, 
hit the booze and never went back out. And my granddad, who was a teetotaler, was bitterly disappointed because they should have gone ahead and represented New Zealand. You know, they, they didn't care. So why didn't you become a boat builder or a sailor, given the heritage? Well, I don't know. But, you know, the funny thing is, I didn't become a boat builder, but my career's followed the ocean as closely as any of these guys. And, you know, and I kind of now see how it fits. Next week, my son is going to sea on a factory trawler. Um, he'll be at sea for two months. Uh, his name is James. He's named after his great-great-uncle, uh, grandfather, sorry, his great-great-grandfather, James Sinclair. Uh, this James Sinclair, um, going to sea. So that's, God, how many generations? I hate to think. Just keeps repeating itself. The ocean is in our blood. Did your kids grow up on the water? Didn't have to stand a chance. I had to. Really, I mean, I remember um, being down in Tikaha with um, James's mum and James uh, as a baby. And he's got a little life jacket on and he's parked in a fish bin. And I remember at one stage catching a yellowfin tuna, dragging it over the back of the boat and it's leaping around and bleeding all over the place. And this little kid's laughing and cackling and screaming with laughter as he's lying in his fish bin. Fish is bigger than he is. I heard that story about how you as a kid would find hooks and lures. Yeah. Um, so well, did you think you would make a career out of this sort of side of um, you know, your interests? Yeah, no, um, I had no idea. Uh, I went to teachers' college until I got chucked out. Um, it's got to be a story there. Yeah, but oh, some things you've got to be a bit careful about. Uh, but yeah, you know, I was a young man just trying to find his way. Really, I, you know, I didn't know. All I knew, and you know, life growing up wasn't all plain sailing. There's quite the booze was a big problem. For both mum and dad, uh, it led to violence, um, a lot of hidings, a lot of, you know, a lot of pretty interesting treatment, which in, in many families, I think, in those days was the norm. Um, men had come back from war uh, and they were psychologically damaged. Um, I think booze helped them forget or they chose to go that way. And the impact on families was shocking. And the other thing is too, you know, we talk about equality, but there was a lot of inequality when you lump responsibility on men who've come back from war damaged and you tell them they've got to f provide for their families and you're not dealing with the psychological problems. You tell them to get out there and freaking earn a living uh, and tell mum to stay at home and look after the kids. Well, gee... Not the ideal world, really. And I hope in many ways we have got a lot better at sharing responsibilities. And in the last three years, um, I've had two very close friends, one of my closest friends, um, who have taken their own lives. Uh, and I go, wow, what, what, what did I miss? Why wasn't I getting the message? What, why is a friend, and a supposed good friend, why was I not asking the right questions? 
why was I not helping create an environment where Dave could have opened up and shared what was going on? And I, and I feel that I failed. You know, I won't, I won't punish myself for that, but, you know, we can constantly improve what we do and how we do it. And part of that, I think, is reaching out. Reach out with people who have got disabilities. Reach out to people who have got psychological stresses and problems in their lives. Reach out and do something about it. Ask the right questions and, and share. Did you get that sort of support when you were going through your challenging times? Oh, there were a few people who have been absolutely fantastic. I mean, I've got a mate down in Tiana, places. Um, uh, Richard Hayes, he's a chopper pilot, he's a well-known um, pilot and well-known individual. He and Carol built a new house. They put a disabled bedroom in the house so I could come and stay with them. Now, that's exceptional friendship to me. You know, they didn't have to entertain the idea of having a bloody special old disabled bedroom in the house, but they did. Just so they make it come and stay. That's exceptional to me. Do you have awkward encounters with people who maybe don't know how to interact with you? Um, well, I tend to be a bit forward. You know, I tend to, to uh, if I see someone struggling a bit, I try and be the person to make the contact. Uh, I don't, I mean, one of the worst ones though, you don't always, I don't always reach out as I could. You know, I remember being at a boat show once uh, and we were selling books and I've written six books, I think. I was selling books and DVDs and God knows what else. And this attractive lady came up and, you know, you signed my book, Graham, here, thank you very much. Thank you. And then... Sandy leaned over and she said, do you know who that was? No, Lucy Lawless. I didn't get to have a conversation with Lucy Lawless. How dumb am I? <laughs> so, God. You, you talked about your childhood was sometimes a bit tough. So was going out fishing and playing boats, was that a, an escape for you? Yeah, there was no boat as a kid. You know, we couldn't... We had a, a dinghy of sorts. It had a great... It kept having rot damaged things happened to it and dad would patch it up a bit more and we'd go out and we'd drag for flounders in the estuary and we've got lots of flounders uh, and we'd spread them around the neighbourhood in a wheelbarrow um, but uh, you know the, I, I, there used to be a little beach along the road from where I lived and the Hamilton jets used to come down there they, and that's I'm talking you know early 60s uh, and I can remember these jet boats turning out these and then boats with outboard motors on them. Wow, you know, fantastic. And it was all like some impossible dream. And then, you know, here I am. I've got one of those impossible dreams out the front uh, of the house. But it wasn't always boats because you were, what, a, a hunter, professional hunter, a yeah. rafting guide, yeah. dive instructor, and then fisherman before you went to teacher's college. Yeah. So how was that transition? Was that just you trying to find yourself, as you were saying? Well, it was just because of my love of outdoor New Zealand, really. You know, I just love to immerse myself in it. Uh, you know, you can see there's been a, there's a few trophies around the wall. Uh, a lot of these ones are actually my son's now, and he's following in those footsteps as well. Others are trophies that people have added in here. Uh, but I've always had this great passion for 
um, the ocean, uh, for our mountains, rivers, lakes. And what I've learnt, especially in the mountains, is invaluable. You know, you do really learn that you're not as shit hot as you think you are. First decent storm in Fiordland, man, was I a humble human being. After I got beaten up in Fiordland and I saw a river come up, I don't know, six metres kind of overnight and water flowing through the trees and having to move camp at midnight sort of thing, you don't forget that stuff. And, you know, you just... And I remember lying in, in, the, in the beach in Cat's Eye Bay in Fiordland in an earthquake. Well, you haven't experienced an earthquake until you're lying on the ground and you get one. That is spectacular. Bouncing up and down and round and round. What do you think you would have done if gone fishing didn't come around? Oh. Because you went into sales at one point too. Oh, I, I'm, a, I'm a salesman. I was born to sell. Yeah, sales and I are just an absolute perfect fit. Yeah, uh, you know. I think the, um, the, the, the thing about selling to me is that it, it's about relationships, it's about building relationships. And as you're probably well aware, I'm quite a social animal, uh, it, as this man cave would indicate. I just love spending time with people. Um, so whatever I would have done would have related, I think, to selling and people. I was the national sales manager for uh, a company called Pfizer, uh, pharmaceutical company was third largest pharmaceutical company in the world at that stage. In fact, uh, they they called me in you know, after I've been there about five years or something, and I was a very young international sales manager, one of the youngest actually. And the boss called me in and said, "Right, I want to share your career development plan." Huh? Shit, mate! Career development plan? What's that? Well, we've thought about your skills and where we think you could go, and this is where we think you could go. Well, I thought, bugger that bullshit, and I resigned the next day. You know, I didn't want to be told what my life would become. I wanted my life to be an adventure. Gee, if if it is true that we travel this way but once, I want to travel this way with purpose. You've certainly done that. You talked a bit about your environmental work, but you also mentioned at the start that... For you, the ocean was something that you saw as a food basket for you to choose what you had as a right. Yeah, totally. How how did your environmental ideas kind of evolve? I I think I started listening to people who cared a little more. I think I started listening to other perspectives and points of view. And I came to realise that the resource was not finite that unless we protected what we've got now, or indeed did what the Fjordland Guardians do, and look to leave that environment in as good a shape, if not better, for future generations. If we don't do that, if we don't take those responsibilities, we're going to lose it. So with that in mind, it's very easy to reshape the way you think. Uh, and and I, I do see industries like the commercial fishing industry reaching out and having a profound positive effect on their footprint. And I think that as recreational anglers, we could do more too. You know, we need to. We need to be in partnerships. If we are out in the big pond, a place that we all share, then if we share and extract, we have a responsibility. 
and that responsibility is to engage and to do what's best. What's best for the environment and what's best for the resource. So if there's one thing you'd really like to see happen, what is that? It's, it's people doing what the, the people like the Guardians and Takorawai attempt to do. Get around the table, have a conversation and engage effectively. Stop thinking about what you want. Start thinking about what you might give uh, so that uh, both Takorawai and Field and Guardians sum it up with a statement. They talk about gifts and gains. If you want something from the, from the table, from the discussion group, then what are you prepared to give in order to get part of at least part of what you want? Gifts and gains, great. Are you still involved? Because you were, what, in, I think, 2013, you're on the board of the Southern Seabirds Trust and you yes. work with the Department of Conservation. Have you, yes. Are you still involved with various no, organisations? Not, as, not with this. You know, some of these things are quite political um, and I'm not seen in the same light by the current government as I was with the last one. That's fine. Governments come and go. Um, but I think there's... Regardless of any political stance, there is a great underwriting current, for want of a better word, that kind of moves things in a more positive direction. And we have the fourth largest uh, exclusive economic zone in the world. Now, if you draw a 200-mile limit around the vast tract of little islands and things that we have, it's a massive, massive chunk. Um, and that's great, and we're doing a good job internationally, but not everyone is. Gee, and we can do better. Uh, the other thing is, too, you've got to be very careful to me about marine protected areas. If we've got, for example, a, um, a big chunk of the Hauraki Gulf, and we lock it up and call it a marine protected area, and we've still got the same number of recreational fishermen going out, the same quota for commercial, the same requirement from iwi, then all we're doing is displacing effort. If we lock up a big tract, then we displace the effort into a smaller area, and that can create its own pressures. The one thing I would do, if I was a bloody government and looked at the Hauraki Gulf, we have a zone out there that is an automatic marine protected area. It's called the cable zone. The cable zone you cannot anchor or fish in. It should be, it's, it's clearly defined on the maps, to clear it, a marine protected area. And let's call it that. So as we sit here, what, we're only a couple of minutes away from the water. Um, we're coming towards summer. When are we going to see Graham Sinclair out on a boat again? Uh, way before summer. Um, in fact, I'm... I've been sitting here for the last you know, hour or so. Um, I'm well ready to get back on that boat. Throw me a rod. So you've got a, a plan? You're, yeah. The show's coming up as well? Yeah. Uh, we start filming Ocean Bounty again uh, next week. What is that? What's the first uh, 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 the, the first one I've, I've filmed, uh, which is a story that starts in Westport at the School of Commercial Fishing. Uh, in the current climate with COVID and loss of employment, there are significant opportunities 
uh, in the commercial fishing sector uh, for employment. And the Westport School trains people uh, in preparation for that. Um, so that's one of those stories. I've got another story on Hokie. Um, I've got a story uh, in Dunedin, which I'm hoping to get to next week, which is about a group down there wanting to get together like the Fiordland Guardians, representing Dunedin and, and Otago. And that, if that's true, and I'm just working through this, I think that's fantastic. And that'll be the first time a, a larger population centre um, and a larger group of commercial iwi recreational um, have really got together and said, right, let's, let's do what's best. And that, to me, is the way forward, and I would be rapt to see that one happen. And how many shows in the next series? Uh, there's just seven show? in this block. Uh, seven. Uh, we're also, there's a, a, um, a group working to build a drone to survey the Maui Dolphins, uh, drone surveys, uh, and we're filming that because uh, that really fascinates me. Because, you know, we talk about Maui Dolphins being under threat, and yes, certainly they are, but they're close, close, close cousin. The Hector's dolphin, the population's increased quite significantly. You know, 16 to 18,000 of them. Well, that's, that's impressive. So, so you try it's not all bad. So you try and understand why and how this could relate to the, to the Maui's. Yeah, yeah. So, so are the Maui... How, how can you tell that they're Maui's? I mean, apparently only because of where they are. Because you, you need to go to the lab, apparently, to tell the difference between a Maui and a Hector. So if you were flying around or driving a boat, how do you know? We know if you're in Akaroa Harbour, the Hectors. So James is heading off to the Southern Ocean yes, next week. Um, have you told him a few war stories? Because you've been down that way, haven't you? I haven't been as far as he's been. I um, put him on board this vessel last year and send him off to film a story in the Southern Ocean for me, um, which he did. So he's going back for seconds. So it's not as though he's going out down there with his eyes closed, but he's going down there to work the deck. It's a bit different from being mollycoddled as the guy with the camera. Yeah, different deal. He'll cope all right? I think he'll cope fine. So just um, just finally, what what does the future hold? You know, what other plans have you got? Um, short, medium, long term. Well, I have uh, plans to continue with Ocean Bounty, and I I love doing it. I'm meeting great people. Uh, that that industry is evolving. I mean, we've done. Have you ever been to Spat NZ in Nelson? Wow, you look at uh, where they where they develop and raise. Muscle spat. Have you been to the muscle farms on the Coromandel? Wow, fascinating. Because they're like snapper magnets. Half the snapper in the Hauraki Gulf must now live over towards the Coromandel. Because every time they put the spat out on the ropes, the snapper scoff them. And so there's a partnership that's evolved there where um, uh, commercial aquaculture is working with... Um, uh, with recreational fishermen for the betterment that the, the mussel farmers want the snapper gone and the recreational anglers want to catch them. Perfect partnership. 
And I, you know, I, I look forward to helping see the development of some more partnerships like that. People working together, having the conversation, and and it's there's a suggestion that it has has not happened. But if there's an accident on the ocean, who other than Coast Guard, and in some places there isn't Coast Guard, who do you think gets the call to go and make the rescue? It's a commercial fisherman. Um, when it comes to things like uh, bluefin tuna, if you want to know where the bluefin tuna are, ask the commercial guys, I'll tell you. you know, we've got to make more of these partnerships work together. So you want to be involved as long as you yeah, are able as and long as long as, as TV executives want to continue to show Too you. bloody right. Great stories, great people doing wonderful things. Not bad. Well, it's been a pretty epic story, that's for sure. But um, before I let you go, um, like all guests on the show, I need to ask your worst wipeout ever. Now, oh. a lot of people obviously... Before you have been talking about sailing stories, but I'm sure there's got to be a worse wipeout for someone who's a boaty. Oh, shit. Do you, do you really want it? I want to hear it. Okay, all right, right. Okay, we were bloody fishing out of Maturi Bay in the far north. Guy that owned the campground drove down, unhooked the boat. He hooked his tractor onto the boat, backed us through the surf, out we went. Went out, caught some really nice snapper. Uh, he hooked, hooked the tra- tractor back on the trailer when we came back in, dragged me out. Busy Christmas, busy. And lots of people come up, gone fishing all over the boat. So they are wanting to have photographs and all this sort of thing. So I'm in the boat with my neighbour who'd been out fishing with me at the time. And friend was driving the vehicle. So he backed the, the vehicle, tractor went away, backed the vehicle um, onto the, 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 the boat trailer and took off. And we're still in the boat. And I'm going, Bill, did you check the tie downs? Have you put the, put the safety chain on? Oh, he said, I haven't had a chance. So we, we pull out and there's a lot of people wanted to chat. And I didn't really want to go. I, I was wanting to engage in conversation. So driver drives off and um, we start going up the hill out of Matari Bay, steep, twisty hill. And I'm going, oh, my God. And, and my, my neighbour's a Christian man. I said, Bill, bloody good time to start praying, Cobber. Might need a bit of divine intervention on this one. So we get up and we're trying to... Phone, the drop, we're trying to do whatever we can. Bang on the boat. Nah, we're off. We get onto the main road. The next road south is Taco Bay Road where we have a property. So the old mate pulls into the road, hits the brakes, and as he accelerates, the hook, the only thing holding the boat, flicks out. And the boat flies off onto the road, bang, with me and Bill in it. Now, it was quite intriguing because I thought, sure as shit, a police officer will be driving along the highway about now. And when everything came to rest, um, we 
finally said, right, um, what are we going to do? Well, cars started pulling up and because we're only just off the road. And um, anyway, I thought, you know, when the cops pull up, what am I going to do? So I thought, Jesus, I've got the perfect line. So I could just see the cop walking along the side of the boat. Yeah, Mr Sinclair, you've seen a problem here. Now, obviously, the only problem I have is that you're standing in my burly trail. So, but anyway, it never turned up. And we managed to get the boat back on the bloody trailer and got home again. But that was, that was very, very embarrassing. But the lesson, of course, never freaking leave a boat ramp or anywhere until everything is checked and double-checked. So any... Like, like you, we just knew that it was all wrong, and we could not get the driver to stop. Any photographic or video evidence? Nothing, you Your Honour. Not guilty, Your Honour. <laughs> and I guess at least it wasn't a massively public area, so not too many people oh. would have seen. Imagine today with all the selfies and the, and the oh. phone... Honestly, it just... Camera phones. It just predated all that. <sighs> now it's on record, though. It's on record? Yeah. Check everything, double check. Well, it's probably a good place to, to conclude. I really want to thank you for, for your time today and for having me along. Um, Absolute for, pleasure. To, to Thanks on, for showing interest. To talk on Broadreach Radio. I think it's um, a topic that a lot of people find a lot of interest in and it certainly covers a lot of territory, not only in terms of your TV career, but also, you know, your challenges personally and how you've been able to approach that. So, um, But that's what they are, you see, that, that you never think you've got a problem. Treat everything as a challenge. If you can treat things as a challenge, you'll find a solution. Good way to uh, end the show. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for another episode of Broadreach Radio. Thanks for tuning in. If you've got any feedback, then you can email me at michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz. Otherwise, I'll catch you with the next episode in a fortnight. Take care.